Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello movie truthers, welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Rogan Graham. And I'm Lillian Crawford. On the show this week, we've got a bumper episode. Darren Aronofsky leads the Renaissance in The Whale, and Little White Lies digital editor Hannah Strong will be speaking to the director about his film. A baby's death leads Alice Diop to seek answers in her stunning tragedy, Saint Germain. Little White Lies editor David Jenkins will be reporting on the highlights from Rotterdam. M. Night Shalaman answers a knock at the cabin in the woods, and Hannah Strong also got to speak to the director. Great week for Hannah. And on Film Club, it's the father of African cinema's debut, Vincent and Ben's Black Girl. All coming up in Truth and Movies and the White Eyes podcast. So, you've probably noticed that this episode is interview heavy, and that is something that we've decided going on forward we're going to be doing more of. So, as well as reports from festivals that the team attend around the world. So you can tune in for your regular reviews from Little White Lies contributors, but myself and members of the team are going to be talking to a lot of very exciting directors, writers and actors. True to the independent spirit of Little White Lies, we're not just going to be reaching out to any big name that comes into town. We're still about truth and movies and want to bring you interesting discussions about films and filmmakers that we truly care about. But one thing that will remain is the fantastic standard of contributors to the podcast. And two of our favourites are here today. Welcome back, Rogan and Lillian. Thank you for having us. Likewise. God, it is quite an exciting week ahead. It's weird because you kind of think of this time of year pre-awards season as being kind of where some of the titles just get dumped. But I, I think it's been a very strong start to the year. You guys had any highlights? I love St. Omer, which we'll be getting to. But I love Tar. And I love Faye Woman's and of course all the beauty and the bloodshed. I think January was so strong. Really great year. It's like a, it's a real shame that the UK kind of gets the, all the kind of Oscary films in January or the start of the following year where they kind of hit the States in November, Thanksgiving time. But at the same time, it's a great way to start the year when it's cold outside and you get to be warm in the cinema watching some incredible movies. Yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate the, the Tartar appreciation, I think. Well, I do remember, I mean, we'll get into it, but one of the things that becomes an issue at this time of year is like, what becomes your favourite films of 2022? What becomes your favourite films of 2023? So I know, Lillian, for you, you were furious that St. Omer, you didn't see in time for it to be one of your best films of 2022. I was, because it now means that if I put it on a ballot for these things, it will have to be next year. And then these things don't end up topping lists and people then don't seek them out, particularly when it's a film like Santa Mare, where people sort of do have to go out hunting for these films, particularly outside of London and major cities where these films are shown in many cinemas. So I think it is a shame. I felt that way with Benediction. I think that Benediction really struck, suffered 
last year because it sort of critics all saw it in sort of November in autumn and the year before and then it ended up not getting any awards at all so Zantamer I think is sort of struggling in in the same way. Yeah Terence Davies lack of recognition when it came to British awards was, was, was kind of quite a sad thing to me but yeah it does seem to come down so much to timing end of year best films of the year are kind of best films of the autumn of the year sadly but yes justice for terence davies but aside from that we should move on because we've got so many things to get into Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to the Steady HQ plan for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. First up, The Whale. Having never recovered from the death of his lover, Charlie, a reclusive English teacher, tries to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter for one last chance at redemption. But before we get into The Whale, we have director Darren Aronofsky, who spoke to Little White Lies digital editor Hannah Strong, who's been championing his film ever since she saw it at the Venice Film Festival. Okay, Okay, ready? Good. Yeah. (laughs) Um... This is Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) Take two. I'd love to hear about the key considerations that you and Samuel had when you started talking about what this might look like as a film as opposed to a play. When I did see it as a play, it was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I think actually when I first read about it in the newspaper, I read a review of it. And I was like, that's such a bizarre idea for a play. There are characters that I've never considered, and I really wanted to go see it. And when I saw it, I was just so moved by all of these characters. And on paper, they're all so different than my own life. Yet, five minutes into it, I was so deeply moved by these characters, and by the end, I was a wreck. And so the day after, I um, got in touch with Sam, and we took a walk, but... I didn't really want to affect it that much. I really felt that it was such a beautiful piece of writing. I do think that it will be a play that will be performed long after me and Sam are gone because there's just so many ways to play it. One one thing that's very interesting is that before I actually shot, there's a, a library in New York at Lincoln Center that records pretty much every play that's been done. And I went to go see uh, the recording of The Whale that I had seen 10 years before. The, the main thing I was struck by was how different the actors in the play played these characters. And yet it still worked. The guy who played Charlie in the play was in no way as empathetic and as heartbreaking. He, he was much more gruff. Yet I still completely fell in love with him and was crushed by his performance. So that just tells you a lot about the level of writing that actors could approach the material in so many different ways. And that's why I think it'll be around for a long time. I mean, you mentioned watching the actor on Broadway play Charlie so differently from how Brendan plays it in the film. And he, I know he's basically the entire reason the film got made now. After you cast him, what was the kind of starting point for your collaboration together? What were the conversations you were having? Well, first I met him. He came by my office. And then not everyone on the team was convinced. So we actually did a read-through. And that's kind of was the first part of the process because we took out a theater on St. Mark's in Manhattan 
and he read it. So we started to get a sense of what he could do. There was some really exciting amount of time, I think three and a half weeks we had where we came together as a theater company and got to rehearse the whole thing. And we started to get a sense of it. But he didn't really come alive until he really put on the costume and became Charlie and sitting on the couch and basically being underneath all that makeup is when the character came to life. I mean, it's the kind of role where the costume is very much a part of it. And yeah. um, I imagine it did change completely the way his like, mindset was. Yeah, I think he has talked about that. You know, he had four hours every morning going into the makeup and an hour coming out. But I think that allowed him to really transform. But actors talk about that always, whatever makeup. Makeup is this tool that actors have used to help make believe. This is the seventh time you've worked with Matthew Libertique as well. And yeah. I'm very interested in how you decided to define the film's visual identity. Because I mean, when I was watching from Venice, the first thing that struck me was how dark the apartment is and yeah. how oppressive it feels. And there's no real sense of time passing. It still feels very visually distinct from your other films. Uh, what kind of conversations and references were you and Matty talking about? Yeah, you know, it was always this movement towards the light which was a huge gamble and risk because anytime you do something that on the surface is obvious you have to do it in ways that sneak up on an audience so that they're not thinking about it happening and the rain and and the weather became a major kind of conversation about how that would sort of push it forward but maddie's doing all crazy very subtle things from how he would light a character's face like Sadie Sink all with cool light at the beginning and slowly start introducing warmer and warmer light of course the path of the film the aspect ratio was a big part of it which I guess is pretty radical for many film viewers it's in a, in a much more square shape and the reason we did that was because it's really the film's about performance and it's about the actors it's less about the setting so I really wanted to draw people into that type of mindset. I'm interested in kind of this recurring theme of parental relationships in your films. A lot of your films do feature yeah. quite turbulent relationships. I mean, I, I know that filmmakers are rarely conscious of things they keep returning yeah. to, but how do you feel that Charlie and Ellie's relationship differs from the work you've done in the past? I was thinking about this earlier today because someone asked me the question as well, and I didn't actually draw the connection until earlier today <laughs> that there was a messed up father-daughter. I've never been in a father-daughter relationship on in either direction meaning. <laughs> and I've had very very loving parents and so it was in Sam's writing and it came from his imagination and it was something to pull on but I don't think I ever even made the connection about the characters in The Wrestler and that there was that connection as well and I guess in Requiem for a Dream there's a real mother-son complexity and definitely Noah is all about family dynamics Mother doesn't really get into any of that stuff except for very slightly. So I don't know. I'm a, I, I don't think I'm exploring it, but I guess, you know, children-parent relationships, everyone has them in some way. And even if you have a pretty solid, healthy relationship, we've all had tough times and we can relate to it. And we also all have friends that have difficult 
journeys as well. So once again, it's it's about my own empathy towards people going through those situations and just being exposed to enough to it and uh, allowing the actors to kind of interpret it. On the kind of subject of recurring things within the work, there's this kind of core connection, I feel, throughout all your work, maybe with the exception of Noah, around the physical limits of the human body and mm. kind of what people push themselves to do or what people endure. Interesting. I, I'm going to ask you quite a, a big question now, but how, how concerned are you about mortality? Well, it's definitely something, as you can see in the fountain, I was thinking a lot about. I think that the work we do with thinking about our own mortality is a practice that is very important for happiness and for health and that people who get comfortable with it actually scientifically live healthier and better lives it's usually the families that can't let go absolutely yeah i think like in this film especially like it's you know charlie's kind of made peace with things yes um, his made peace with situation and really fighting is around these people in his life that love him very deeply i listened to very well said thank you (laughs) i can't remember where you said this but you were talking about the different directors that had been interested in making this what was it that kind of kept you tethered to it for such a long time well, look, look, when George wanted to make it, I would love nothing more than to produce a George Clooney film. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the filmmaker and the human being that he is, but it ultimately didn't work out for him. So so it came back to me, but that, that would have been a really nice a nice gift to Protozoa and my, and my company. It was something that I liked and I felt there may come a time for it. And I, and I do think COVID and the kind of, shrinking down of the world and then the kind of pressure from people I work with wanting to work again and the reality that doing a film of five actors in a room during the height of of the pandemic when there was no vaccine and people were still dying that felt like a safe project to get people back to work that wasn't too irresponsible. And lo and behold, no one got sick along the course of the entire filmmaking process. And we all got to come together in a very, very serious way to do the best work that we could at that time. I didn't want to do a big movie because I felt that there was like something irresponsible about going out and these films were getting shut down mm. for two weeks because someone would want an extra would show up and they'd be sick and infect everyone. It just felt too crazy. Turning to something kind of different, but very much on the subject of what you do with your pandemic. I hadn't realized you wrote a children's book until yeah. the other day. And, and that was yeah. kind of a wild discovery for me. Obviously, you know, you, you wrote it with Ari, but like, why? Like, what was the Im- impetus there? Well, it was based on a script that I never got made. And a sci-fi writer friend of mine at some point said, hey, you have any scripts I want to read? I'm thinking of, I don't know why he wanted, I think maybe he was thinking about writing scripts or something. So I gave him Monster Club, the script, and he read it. And he said, oh, why don't you turn this into a, a middle grade book, you know, kids, nine to 12 year old, which is who, who it was written for as a movie. And I thought it was just a great idea. And Ari and I just really enjoyed ourselves doing it. It's fun because in movies, you have to show, not tell. But like in books, you can have characters with internal monologues. And so we'd be like writing these things and they'll go, oh, how are we going to show that? And then we go, oh, we don't have to show it. 
our character can just think it. So it was kind of exercising a different muscle in our brains, and we had a good time. Especially right with the kids as well. It's... It was fun. It was fun. It was nice and innocent. We are actually, we just handed in the first draft of volume two of Monster Club. Oh, so it's going to be coming out next year. Do you have any plans to make it into a film still? Or do you think now it's a book, it's going to stay a book? We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's weird because it's kind of like a Goonies type of thing. They don't make and those films anymore. They don't make those films anymore because people are, are watching Marvel. So... Lillian, this has been a film that has been getting Brendan Fraser a lot of attention and, you know, a well-deserved comeback. For you, was the film as strong as the performance within it? No, I don't think so. And I think that the main reason being is that Brendan Fraser is leading with a lot of empathy, that he's he's taking this character, which has caused quite a lot of controversy in how it's been portrayed, and really leaning into the script by Stephen D. Hunter, which is based on a play that he wrote about his own experience with obesity. And I think that Brendan Fraser really sort of pulls from that script very well. It's just a shame that he's sort of having to do it within this these many layers of prosthetic fat suit and then also having this sort of claustrophobic cinematography which is very much sort of in line with Aronofsky's style of almost transforming it into a form of body horror which I found deeply uncomfortable and we have this this score by Rob Simonson which would be great if it was a sort of film adaptation of Moby Dick or a film about the sinking of an actual ship but it's it's not it's supposed to be this film about empathy and and sort of having tenderness towards Charlie the, the music is sort of swells with this brass and these strings and these these moments when Charlie's alone and we see him binging on food because he's using this as a, as a means of sort of getting out his frustration and his sadness as part of his his eating disorder. And I just found those scenes incredibly uncomfortable. So I, I think that the film itself does a disservice to the performance that Brendan Fraser is giving. And I think it's great that he's getting the recognition that he always should have had. I mean, Brendan Fraser is a terrific actor, but... I felt very disappointed that this is the film that he's sort of been forced to come back with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it certainly is an uncomfortable watch. But yet one of the things that I did find particularly impressive about Brendan Fraser's performance is that he's doing this within this giant prosthetic suit. You know, he's kind of weighed down by, you know, I think it's actually reasonably realistic perhaps in the world of fat suits that's not a um you know that that's damning with faint praise but the prosthetics of it all i mean that at least to me seemed to be of a higher level than what we're used to rogan for you i mean it's it's an uncomfortable film i think it is supposed to be an uncomfortable film but did you get much from it yeah i mean i i agree with lillian that the best part of the film is is brendan's performance but I, I don't know. I kind of came into it with, with really low expectations. And to say it surpassed them, again, it doesn't really say much. I think that the bar is so low for how we treat fat people in film, how we kind of think of eating disorders in that way. We have a very kind of narrow perspective, I think, societally of, of what eating disorders are. And when it comes to fat people, it's usually just seen as like a lack of discipline. So, so I think that really Brendan brought so much empathy to the character and the story and I don't know if the filmmaking necessarily matched it um I agree the score was so intrusive and I think it, especially the scenes of him eating which I understand you need to include because it, there's this kind of level of mania and, and impulsiveness when you're dealing with such unhappiness in the way that you treat yourself in those moments 
yeah, it was just, I mean, it was Aronofsky, the, the way he approaches things and not necessarily how you expect. I mean, you mentioned Moby Dick and then how the score might be something you'd hear in, in an adaptation of Moby Dick or this kind of soaring great spectacle. And that's how he thinks of the character, you know, so as much as I found the score uncomfortable, it's also perfectly logical that that is how he would treat the music in his film, you know, I think. And, and there is this, he's an English teacher. And I suppose we haven't really spoken much about the plot. So it's sort of set over seven days. And I, I think it's very clear from the beginning. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that these are the final seven days of the character's life. And it's, you know, Monday and, and there are all these incredibly tense moments where you, you think Charlie's about to die because, you know, his heart is giving up on him and, you know, moving is incredibly difficult. And it's just really heartbreaking from the beginning. You, you know, you don't want this man to die. And it is a really difficult watch, but at the same time, things like the score and and the sort of filmmaking style. I do agree about the fat suit. I mean, fat suits are divisive, and I, and I think rightly so. But at the same time, you know, they've not sort of stuffed a pillow in, in Brendan Fraser's shirt, which is what... I mean, I love Emma Thompson, but that is very much how a Matilda fat suit looked, you know? It, it's a tough watch, and to say that it cleared a low bar isn't necessarily saying, saying much. But I do think Brendan was wonderful. There's this kind of surprise... For me, it was a surprise coming of his ex-wife and in the screening I was in, everyone kind of went, oh, <laughs> when she when she showed up. But there's all this this kind of religious stuff and it's just a bit predictable Aronofsky. And I mean, it was fine. I mean, in terms of predictable Aronofsky, my favourite Aronofsky is The Wrestler. And I think there's a lot of parallels here. I think there there has been some sort of controversy around like whether this is actually a very like hateful portrayal of struggling with obesity. And it's even difficult language wise to talk about this because I don't want to kind of use terms that are ties to eugenics, (laughs) like something like, you know, what, what does it mean to be obese? And obviously the portrayals of struggling with weight and culture are so hideous that I think it'll be decades till we even properly have the language to talk about things like this. But yeah, I I just, I can't fully align with the criticism that this is a hateful film because I felt that this was actually very loving towards Brendan Fraser's character, towards Charlie. It does acknowledge that like the people in his lives that he encounters are kind of somewhat horrified by him but I felt that it was judging them rather than judging him mm. well I, th- I think that's that's part of it and judgment is obviously a, a huge part of the film I think that a lot of the discussion around the film has been around fatness and and food and what the film is really sort of about is about religion and his homosexuality and the complications that's caused for his family I mean Sadie Sink is absolutely remarkable as his daughter and Hong Chao is so good as his carer. I think that he's sort of surrounded by equally brilliant performances within this film, which which really, once it started, and it starts with this sh- with this shot of Brendan Fraser sort of caught in a moment of privacy, which is designed, I think, to nauseate, and it's really designed to sort of turn you against him, which I, I immediately had an issue with the opening scene of the film. But then I think once it gets past that, the idea is that this is how you perceive fat people, and then we're going to deconstruct that so you see the human behind it, which I took issue with because that assumes that everyone watching the film immediately feels repulsed whenever they see someone who is overweight, which is sort of going against what the film really wants to do. But I suppose maybe Aronofsky just assumes that that is how people feel. And I mean, in the cinema that I saw in at London Film Festival, that certainly was the impression because there were people making all sorts of horrific noises and comments under their breath. And by the end of the film, they were standing and cheering and clapping. And I just, I found the whole experience of watching this film really 
peculiar, which meant that I left feeling very conflicted about how how I felt about it, which I suppose is a sign of an interesting film that we are having these discussions that it's provoked so much debate. I had the same people making comments in in my screening. It got to a point where I really, I was kind of turning around and giving stern looks because appalling cinema etiquette is like one thing, but you know, the kind of comments that were being made, I think especially at moments that I found heartbreaking moments where Charlie was on the brink of death. But one thing, Layla, you, you made a comment just about Brendan's performance and it kind of, whether or not this film is hateful. And I do think that Brendan is the best part of the film. But then I also think, is it possible to divorce our love for Brendan Fraser from this film? And would we maybe think it's more hateful if maybe there was a more hateable... I mean, you, you changed if the James actor, Cor- you changed James the James Corden had well, been well, in yeah, the film. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> yes. you change you the actor, you change the film. You know, I know that's like not a sensical point but yeah may I, I don't know maybe we need some room from the film from award season to maybe look at it with clearer eyes when Brendan's kind of back on his feet and we don't have to maybe rally around this as a comeback maybe I don't know I mean I don't know how confirmed this is versus just film twitter rumors but there was an idea because this was a very successful play that though it was going to be Tom Ford directing and James Corden starring which darkest timeline I cannot <laughs> I think that would have been an abomination and perhaps with that nightmare in mind I actually feel that this given the material I think Darren Aronofsky and Brendan Fraser bought something something much more sensitive and at times profound. But yeah, we, I mean, we mentioned the supporting cast. For me, Samantha Morton coming in was just such a wonderful little, it's a little more than a cameo, but she has this kind of fantastic five minutes and it's so funny. And she so just gives a breath of fresh air into something that I think could otherwise be a li- little bit oppressively dour. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I mean, you talked about this as being a film about religion Lillian I mean did the kind of missionary there's kind of a death cult element to it did that work for you well I mean one of the other films we're talking about sort of has this element to it and I think it's quite an interesting comparison to make and and I suppose at the moment I mean since I've seen the film with the Church of England sort of persisting in its refusal to officiate over same-sex marriages I suppose that it's something that I'm always very conscious of as a religious person and and I think that the relationship between queerness and religion is a really fascinating one that's not always very well dealt with I mean obviously you have quite an extreme case of a religious character that ties Kind plays in, in in this film, but I think those those themes are really important and really, especially to a lot of people who are made to feel shame and guilt around their sexuality. And the fact that this is shown as sort of the start of of Charlie's decline in health is really interesting. I don't think it's something that I've seen portrayed in the film before, and may, may, maybe that ties in also to to Charlie's sort of intense interest in literature. I mean, Moby Dick has such wonderful sort of queer readings of it, and of Melville literary professors like Eve Kosovsky Sedgwick, whose work on Melville I'd highly recommend reading if you're interested. Because I think that what's really important for Charlie is that we do see that aspect of his character, that we are focused on the fact that this is an extremely intelligent man who has a really deep and profound love for literature, but he's struggling to continue to share that. He wants to share it with his daughter and he wants to share it with his class, but he feels unable to do so because of the levels of shame that he has. And those are the aspects of the film that I found most most sensitive and created a character rather than just the sort of prosthetics that we're supposed to sort of gawk at, I suppose. Yeah, it's one of those ones that's quite tricky to recommend necessarily because as much as I know so many people who 
have really enjoyed it and people who have histories with disordered eating that have really enjoyed it. There is some other people I know that have been incredibly upset by it. So it's kind of very difficult to suggest to people because you don't want people to end up triggered. But I think there is a lot of beauty to be found if you are open to it. But yeah, Rogan, before we move on, any last thoughts on the whale? Yeah, I mean... talking about the you know the death cult of america american death cults and and i think an obvious lazy kind of reading would be like obesity but it's loneliness i think and isolation and uh, and i think it maybe functions best or, or at least least clumsily as a film about profound loneliness and all the ways you know that a person wants to punish themselves because of the many ways, you know, society isolates people, whether it be through religion or because of their sexuality or because of their size, you know, all of these things. I think a generous reading would be that. So let's get some scores on this. Lillian, do you want to go first in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of Aronofsky. I love Black Swan and I'm one of the the rare people who really enjoyed Mother. So I, I think I was probably going at a four. Big fan of Brendan Fraser, of course. Enjoyment is so difficult because it really was sort of the nature of the screening but I saw it in which left me with this really uncomfortable sensation I sort of had to sit afterwards and just really try to reflect on the film so I think I'd probably give an enjoyment a two and then in retrospect a three because I do think that the stylization of the film is abhorrent and and really I so wish it had been staged in a very different way but all for all of the reasons that we've talked about all of the things that I think are really interesting and the fact that the film is gesturing towards these conversations that people have been having which I think are important because as you said the language that we use around around fatness and and weight and eating disorders still feels like something that we haven't sort of got a concrete idea of so I I, I think I'll, I'll settle on a three is what I've decided. That is so exciting because I always think of you as a person that sees things as ones or fives and I never know which way it's going to go. (laughs) A three. The films that I find most compelling and interesting and the ones that sort of throw me off sideways are are the ones that end up at a three. (laughs) Rogan, what about you? I would give it a two in anticipation. I'm not an Aronofsky fan. I don't find him you know, as repellent as some people. I watch his films because I'm nosy and I want to see what the fuss is about. And I always come away going, oh, okay, well. Um, So two in anticipation. It feels weird maybe giving this a three in enjoyment, but I mean enjoyment in terms of I didn't want to look away. I was willing, even though I knew, I was willing Charlie to get better, really. And I think that yeah, that I suppose that yeah, that's a, a mark of good engagement, isn't it? Even if you kind of you know how things are going to end, you still are watching in hope that something different will happen. I will say though, I did not find Sadie Sink's performance remarkable. <laughs> I, I, which I feel like I'm probably one of the only people, but I was really like, oh, the child's back. Even though I'm sure she's a young adult by now, but uh, you know, God bless her, she's young. But I uh, I did struggle with her scenes, I will say. And then in retrospect. I think I'd I'd give it I'd give it a three as well, but I'd I'd like more retrospect. I'd like to come back to it in a few years' time and maybe and have a real retrospect if score on it. I have to say you're not alone when it comes to Sadie Sink. I wasn't. I, I, I. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's also just kind of teenagers are somewhat unbearable but that's why I think why I enjoyed Samantha Morton's scene because it was like a little bit acknowledging that like oh they're so she's evil tough (laughs) (laughs) she's is that the line she's evil 
But yeah, so kind of for me, it kind of took a little bit of like, oh, okay, the film is acknowledging that this person is unbearable. <laughs> but yeah, um, perhaps a four in anticipation for me. I generally really like Aronofsky's films aside from Mother, which was a step too far. Maybe three in enjoyment. There's an element also when you kind of got a difficult subject matter like that and people weren't misbehaving as they were in your screening, Lillian, but a little bit of tension if you worry that like somebody around you is maybe is getting some very kind of salt rubbed into some very open wounds, perhaps. But I would say, and it's been a while since I've seen this, but I would say four in retrospect, I, I actually think there's a lot more there than I think a lot of people have given it credit for. It's a film brimming with ideas and Brendan Fraser is just wonderful. And if he wins that shiny statuette in a month or so's time, um, I would not begrudge that at all. Next up, Little White Lies editor David Jenkins is giving us all of the hot tips and highlights from Rotterdam. Hello, a little voice note from me, David Jenkins, the uh, editor of Little White Lies. Greetings from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. I'm here attending the uh, 2023 International Film Festival Rotterdam. In some capacity, helping out as I'm moderating the press conferences for 16 films that are competing for the Tiger Award. And all these films are first and second time filmmakers. And it's been a very inspiring task for me, meeting these filmmakers who are sort of fresh out the gate, coming to this festival with extraordinary and unique and all, all very interesting films. I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to judge them up against each other, but by the time you hear this, I suspect the Tiger Award will have been announced. I want to give you a few little highlights of my trip. One of them was a new video installation by Steve McQueen uh, called Sunshine State. Rotterdam has always been a festival dedicated to artist film, and this year was, was no different. Sunshine State is a four-panel video installation where McQueen has remixed footage from The Jazz Singer, the 1927 film, mainly a moment with Al Jolson applying blackface, which he slows up and speeds up and goes backwards and forwards. And as you're seeing this footage, McQueen himself is recounting this story about that his father told him in his deathbed about racist attack he suffered while orange picking in Florida in the 60s. And it's an extraordinary film, like very, very, very powerful, maybe one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen from Steve. Steve McQueen and that's saying something. Just want to name check in my closing gambit uh, two films that I, I really loved when I saw saw them over there. One of them is called Girlfriends and Girlfriends by Zayda Carmona, a Spanish film. It's a kind of lesbian love hexagon film inspired by and in homage to the French filmmaker Eric Roma. It's very funny and spry and witty and it's got this incredible electro pop soundtrack and it's 80 minutes and it's just extremely charming and I hope someone picks up and releases it. The other film I saw, which was maybe the, the, the main highlight, is one that's been on the festival circuit for a while and it's called Trinquilacuen. Yeah, that's a, that's its title. Not very uh, poppy, I know, by the Argentine director Laura Citarella. It's a, a four and a half hour film. It's in two parts. It's about a woman who finds love letters stashed in library books and goes on this strange treasure hunt to find out who the people are who are corresponding to one another. It's all about having your attention drawn away and suddenly finding yourself dedicating your heart and soul to something completely different. Like an obsession just quick stopping and becoming something else and not really ever seen anything like it to be honest and again although it's a quite a tough proposition in terms of runtime it's a really just engrossing and an intriguing and constantly entertaining film and i hope again yeah it, it shows in the uk soon so yeah that's my general rotterdam roundup thanks for listening 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks so much for David. Now we're going to move on to St. Thomas. Rama is a pregnant academic and novelist who attends the trial of Lawrence Colley, a Senegalese woman accused of murdering her 15-month-old child by leaving her on the beach to be swept away by the tide. She intends to turn the tragic event into a literary retelling of Medea, but what she finds there proves far more complex than she could have imagined. So I think any regular listeners or anybody that reads what I write will know that this was my film of the year, my film of next year, depending on how we measure these things. I am the president of the Alice Diop fan club. Rogan, will you be joining our next committee meetings? As <laughs> Oh, you know, that's a big ask. No, I, I really enjoyed the film. I've had quite an interesting journey with this film. I saw it at a London Film Festival screening and it was film number four of the day and the aircon was blasting in my face for the duration and I came away thinking it wasn't worth that. <laughs> because it was an unenjoyable viewing experience. Some time removed and having rewatched, I think, oh, yes, this is a wonderful movie. But yeah, I mean, it starts with, you see um, Laurence on the beach at night and then cut to Rama waking up in a cold sweat and her partner telling her, you were calling for your mum. And I think that's that sets the tone of the whole film. It, it's not a cat and mouse, but it is this really intense relationship between these women who really have no relationship at all, but they have relationship. These women who are reckoning with motherhood and migration and all these really broad themes and it's an incredibly understated film and Alice Diop is so measured and so skillful and it's so incredibly bold in the approach that it takes. I will say I'm not sure how I felt about the approach when I first saw it but I appreciate it a lot more on second watch and I would encourage you should seek it out anyway but you should also really sit with it and read around it afterwards is what I would say yeah I think so highly of the film Layla if you want to chime in because I know you love it and I it feels wrong even though you're the host to have an episode with you well I mean I I had um also a, a slightly unconventional way of watching it it was it was just before Venice and I think it, before any buzz had gotten up and you know Alice Diop has made wonderful documentaries in the past and many of them are on movie and worth seeking out they're incredible I did have in my mind that like this was probably one to definitely make time for 
Bowl because it was in competition, despite it being less starry than some of the other ones. But they they just sent me a link and they were just like, oh, if you want to check this out. And I, I don't think they knew quite what a gem they had with them because why are they sending out like just a, just a little link to a film journalist? So I kind of sat in my room with my headphones on and it was just like uncovering a jewel and being slowly devastated. And I had three or four days it felt like nobody else in the world had seen it. I'm sure they had, but nobody I knew had. And I just kept kind of messaging people and then re-watching the final scenes, the final speeches and pacing the room, thinking that I had really seen a piece of art that spoke to me on a molecular level and I was genuinely forever changed by it. I, I kind of can't overstate what this film did to me. And I've, I've seen it a few times since I've spoken to Alice Diop, who is every bit as incredible as I could have ever dreamed that she would be. Yeah, it's strange because I think particularly in the field that we're in, sometimes praising things, there never feels like there's sufficient language. So yes, I will pause because perhaps silence is the best way to kind of convey my awe. Lillian, I'm hoping you will be able to articulate what is so special about Saint Omer, perhaps better than I can. I mean, just listening to both of you talking about it, I'm already starting to get emotional again. <laughs> it's such a, it's a really difficult film to talk about without crying. I watched it in similar circumstances to you later. I had a screening link to, to watch it and I vaguely knew that you and various other people had sort of chimed with it and I didn't really have much to expect of, other than Alice Diop's name to it. I think what this film does, which is so special by contrast to something like The Whale, <laughs> is is the remove of it, this sort of almost objective detachment that you have in a sort of I mean, I, I kept thinking that it sort of felt almost like a straw poirier film in that you're just literally watching people talking without much going on. But then you have Claire Maton, who did the, the cinematography and she did the cinematography for Portrait of a Lady on Fire and quite a lot of Agnes Varda's films. And the way the camera moves through this courtroom in both emptiness and with people there, the way it closes on different characters' faces, particularly um, the defence barrister, gorgeously played by Aurelia Petit, and her sort of address to us, the jury, at the end of the film was just some of the most astonishing and powerful acting and vocalisation of feelings of womanhood and of motherhood and I just was completely in awe of all of it and there's not much music in the film but the way the music is used it's there's um, part of Caroline Shaw's Partita for Eight Voices which is one of my absolute favourite works and towards the end of the film Little Girl Blue by Nina Simone comes in and I think that was the final straw for me with my emotions. I think as soon as I heard that sort of good King Wenceslas piano <laughs> come in, I just properly started crying my eyes out. And there's this thread of Medea in the film as well, which is really, really beautifully placed. I think that given that Alice Diop comes from a documentary background, there are these aspects that that could be described as documentarian approach to the way that the court case is filmed. But then you also have these fiction film flourishes that really round it out and position us with Rama and with Laurence and the barrister in ways that I just can't think of another film within maybe, well, maybe Le Venement, the uh, happening, the Audrey one adaptation of the Annie I know book maybe is perhaps the only other film really that has sort of evoked similar feelings within me watching a film it was a really extraordinary and very special experience yeah I genuinely feel that I've changed 
my relationship with my mother. It changed my relationship with my daughter. It was a very profound experience. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that the background of this is, is so fascinating, which I only learned after I'd first seen the film, that this is based on a real life court case. Alice Diop was fascinated by reading in the papers about this Senegalese immigrant to France who had been accused of drowning her daughter. She thought that maybe this was kind of a false accusation. She saw that there was a lot of racism in the way that the media was reporting on it. And so she herself went and attended the trial of this. And then at the end of this, made a kind of fictionalised recounting of events. God, I mean, I, I, I've struggled to even ask you a question, Rogan. But I think one of the amazing things for me about this is that these, these are very inexperienced actresses. I think in terms of the actress school, Saggy, who's playing Colleen, I think this might be her first role. I mean, what did you take from the performances? Oh God, yeah, it was incredible. Like, I think I already used the word measured, but that kind of control, I don't know, I think some American actors can only dream of having that level of restraint and discipline in a performance. And I found her performance chilling and moving and my eyes were trained on her at all times. And when the, you know, the frame changed, I was looking for her. I thought that she was absolutely incredible. And yeah, I mean, it's so hard because it, she exists so perfectly within that world. It's re- it is really bizarre because I can't picture anyone outside of Saint-Omer, any of the actors, which is like a really bizarre feeling. It's like this perfect dollhouse that you kind of enter and then you leave. And I, I can't conceive of anyone within that world existing outside of it. It is quite a strange feeling, actually, thinking about that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know because it was the French defence, her closing remarks when I first saw them, I really struggled with. And, and I don't know why. And I don't know if it's my age or because I don't have children or, I, you know, I don't know what it is. But on the second watch, everything just really fell into place with me. I think that's why I say I, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about the film, but it is interesting hearing how it really hit you both immediately. And I would say that anyone listening who might think this seems a bit too tense. Yeah, I would say watch it and sit with it and go back to it because it, it is a masterpiece and it is a kind of once in a it's not like best film of the year it's like you know this is kind of it now <laughs> it's like do you know what I mean it's like cemented like that's you know um yeah is how I feel about it now but yeah I did find some of it difficult but that's not a bad thing I mean it's funny because I feel that normally my advice is always like go and find it on the biggest screen possible and I think for many people that would be a wonderful experience but I actually think watching it alone in quiet and really sitting with it was so incredibly like profound as an experience I just I can't think of anything that kind of felt like it broke into my DNA in quite the same way as this I don't normally plug my own work but if you go to the most recent issue of Little White Lies I did speak to Alice Diop and I was I was so pleased when I saw not just the beautiful artwork that they did for it but they titled it A Love Letter by Leila Latif and I was like yeah it is it is I think for her to put the amount of herself in it must have had such a toll on her. I think that I can't think of another film that I have seen in quite some time where a filmmaker has put so much of themselves into a film. I think you said to me that she sort of finds it, the whole experience of sort of talking about it, quite hellish because there is so much of that within it and it is a deeply it's a deeply personal film but it's also a deeply universal one and I think that that's really where it's it's sort of 
specialness lies. Yeah, I think she found the process of the trial very difficult, writing it very difficult, filming it was agony. And then like now talking to all these sort of emotionally raw journalists with all the kind of correct attention that it's getting. That's a weight on her, but I was just so grateful that she was able to find the strength to do it because my goodness, St. Amar. Yeah, so we should probably get some scores on this bumper episode and all. Rogan, do you want to go first? I will say for shame, I have not seen any of Alice Diop's other work. Um, So I went in, it's good to know it's on movie though. I went in with a three because a new film could be anything. That's exciting. And then it's, yeah, I would, I'd give it a four for enjoyment, but that's like on second watch. First time would be more of a three, but four. And then I think in retrospect, I do, I know I have this thing with Layla. It's like, I do give everything a five, don't I? I think, I, I think, it, I think it, it warrants that actually. So yeah, a five in retrospect. And I urge you to seek it out and read about it and listen to Alice Diop talk about it. As painful as she finds it, she has done it and and go and listen to her and and read her. And yeah. Lillian, what about you? Yeah. I mean, this is a very easy fives across the board for me. Uh, What I will say is that there's a lot of quite rich philosophical investigation within the film that maybe some people might find alienating, but I think it's important to remember that that everything is sort of placed very carefully within the film, and particularly in relation to Laurence's character. So one of the really astonishing things about the film is sort of the the conflict between what testimony is getting from other people and the assumptions that she doesn't really know what she's talking about when she's talking about Wittgenstein. By contrast, this is a highly intelligent woman. I I think that's worth worth noting other than that i mean for me that 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 only served to increase the the film's power and its its specificity so yeah the last thing i'll add on santa people simply must see this film yeah i think probably one of our geekier moments lillian was the evening that we spent talking about how alice diop really gets wittgenstein (laughs) (laughs) as as wittgenstein fans (laughs) which is a lovely bond that we discovered that we had yes Alice Diop Hive, Wittgenstein Hive, rise up. Fives across the board for me. I just had a feeling about this one. I think there was, yeah, I I didn't know that much about it, but I just had an instinct that this was going to be something very special. And like, yeah, I can't, I really can't praise it enough as much as I admired all the beauty and the bloodshed and which kind of got the major prize at Venice. I, I would like to see this given everything. Nobel Prizes, Oscars, which sadly it won't get Venice bears or whatever it is that they give out. But yeah, Alice Diop has done something incredibly difficult. She's put herself through the ringer, but I think the rewards to the audience are incomparable. But yeah, next up, something a little on the dark side, but a little bit more fun. Knock at the cabin. While vacationing at a remote cabin, a family of three is suddenly held hostage by four strangers who demand that they sacrifice one of their own in order to avert the apocalypse. Before we get into the film, Hannah Strong spoke to the delightful M. Night Shyamalan. First of all, I want to thank you because when I was 11, my English teacher showed us um, The Sixth Sense in mm. English as a example of a film with a plot twist. And um, wow. it gave me the film book from then on. I was like, oh my God, I want to do this. I want to be involved in this somehow. That's and amazing. Did the, did your teacher tell you that in advance when they were showing it to you or, the, or showed it and then told you? She didn't tell us what was going to happen, but she was like, there's a, there's a twist in this. So already, already I take umbrage with your exactly. teacher. 
That's a terrible <laughs> you way. Tell every bit of eleven-year-olds is a twist coming because then they're all there. Like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> we were mind blown by it, at that age. But talking of like scripts, I'm very interested in what you first made of the scripts for Knock at the Cabin because obviously for you, most of your films have been original works. So yeah. What was it about this that made you really want to hang on to it and do it yourself? You know, it was. It came to me as a movie. And the premise of the screenplay, which was very a very faithful adaptation of the book, so it was essentially a, the book in screenplay format. And I was feeling so many emotions and ideas from the premise. And the original, the book, and and it subsequently its screenplay went in a different direction than the premise. Essentially, after a while, and I was like, no, stay with the stay with the premise. So I and luckily it came back to me in a different form much later. And, and I was like, oh man, maybe this is the, you know, the universe saying, finish that story. The one that you, you were like so passionate about in your head. Because mm. it is quite a departure in the final act from the book. I read mm-hmm. the book and mm-hmm. I really liked it. And mm-hmm. I was really excited to see what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. I obviously, I don't want to spoil it for yeah, listeners yeah. because yeah, don't do that's, that. <laughs> that's part of the joy of the <laughs> film. But what was it that made you feel that you needed to tell a different story from the one that was on paper. I felt like the premise is so profound that they have to make a choice. They have to make a choice. Just make a choice. Either way. Either way. Make a choice. To not have that be the destination of the the story, I I felt that I I lost something, that I Mm. missed something. So I don't mind it either way. Yes or no. No problem. But (laughs) make a choice. I feel like sacrifice is something that comes up a lot in your work as well. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of what people and families are willing to do mm-hmm. for each other. So mm-hmm. I feel like it fits really nicely into this body of work that you've been curating with both film and television. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, yeah, I guess so. You know, I think that the things that I'm doing around it really affect it. Obviously, with Servant, mm-hmm. there's, there's real genetic connections. Even You know, some of them are literal, like Rupert. Yeah. But um, they're, they're really tied because I'm in the same place as I'm telling these stories. So they ha- they kind of start to draw from the same cupboard of, of, of spices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great cupboard. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's a long time. Speak, you mentioned Rupert, who I was just, I'm, as a British person, I think we're always just so thrilled to see him. I grew up, you know, watching Harry Potter and we've just been really like thrilled that he got the big role in Seven. He's such a sweetheart. So it's really lovely to see so, him. So, such a sweetheart. Huh. Not be so sweet in this. One, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was thrilled. But also, Dave Batista, one of my kind of favorite emerging actors, yeah. he's still emerging. He's still yeah. getting to kind of challenge himself in this film. Feels like it's something really different for him. So I'm interested in kind of when you decided you wanted to work with him. Have you had your eye on him for maybe a film for a while? Dave, I saw in Blade Runner, yes, 2049, and you know, for me, what for whatever reason, you know, having my talent is being able to see other people's talent, you know, and reminding them of their talent, a mentor, a motivator, whether that's me as a director or as a colleague or that kind of thing, and reminding you how amazing you are and, and bringing that out of you. And when I saw Dave in that scene, I was absolutely certain I was looking at someone who was doing something uncommon, the way he was thinking and emoting and what his body was doing and how he conveyed himself. He wouldn't describe it this way, you know, but <laughs> I, I know it. And so then I met him, you know, and usually I meet actors that I'm considering just to see where they are in their life. Are they in a bad place? Are they are they protective? Are they arrogant? Are they insecure in the wrong way? You know, Dave was literally at the perfect place in his life. All I care about is getting better as an actor. And basically, I'll, I'll do anything, bro. He was like, I, you know, 
And I believed him. And I'm like, well, you're going to go way past your comfort zone on this one. And <laughs> he did. And he's just so lovely. And and although uh, we were other actors, the, the British actors were all, we were hanging out last night. We were talking about Dave and how much it was like when he started saying the lines, everybody was like electricity. Everybody in the room was like, holy smokes, <laughs> this is real. He's really this guy. He has such presence, I think, on screen. And it's been really like that he did an interview. I think it was with GQ a few weeks ago when he was talking about what his challenges are as an actor. And I think in your films, you really give actors the space to do that. Yeah. Like James McAvoy, obviously yes. Bruce and uh, even Samuel Jackson. You yeah. know, these people really pushing themselves to kind of do something new. So I can understand why he would want to take up this challenge and become part of the M. Night universe in that way you know sometimes i work with actors that are famous and sometimes i work with actors that are new and up and coming and almost every time i'm like hey you know the thing that you are being rewarded for you're incredibly charismatic and charming and you know all of those things we're not doing that we're gonna do something else here and we're gonna talk through the character all that stuff's going to happen. That's going to happen on its own. Don't, don't, I don't even want you to think about it. You can't help doing that. But so we're going to do something totally different. We're just going to concentrate on this character, on, on the, where, where the character is at that moment on that couch when they, when that thing happens and that's it. And then all of that, other, all those colors and the acrobatics and the fireworks, whenever that comes up, it comes up, but don't, if you go for that because you know, you're going to get a reaction. Don't fucking do it. I will, I will call you on it. And so they feel freedom because they became very famous or or becoming famous for that stuff. And I'm saying, that's not why I picked you. Mm. It's because I saw there was something else. I want to talk about the kind of visual identity of the film and especially uh, the cinematography. Because obviously mm, you had amazing. two cinematographers on this. Yes. And I was reading that you chose to use 90s lenses on this yes. to get the visual look. So if you could talk about your work with Jaren and Lau and kind of how you guys collaborated together. Yeah, I mean, Jaren um, did all the, the main interiors of the cabin and then Lowell did the exteriors because of a schedule thing. But it was, you know, we, we established all the lenses, Jaron and I. He does extensive tests, so we do. And I love to do camera tests. And we're trying every lens, meaning old lenses that people don't use anymore. We're trying mm-hmm. everything. And he just goes, which ones do you like? And I'm like, I don't, he doesn't even show me what the, you know, what ones, okay, he doesn't, I, it's just a kind of a litmus test. And I go, that one. I love the way that's working. Can I see other stuff? Wow, the exteriors with that lens look great. The interiors look great. Dark stuff looks great, that kind of thing. And lo and behold, they're really cumbersome lenses, you know, like they they weigh a lot. Like when when you're trying to hold it, you you have to like hold it like that. It doesn't fit on some equipment and you have to brace it because it's not meant for the new equipment with all the fancy rigs that can move and all stuff. It's not meant for that. And they're so imperfect that they're they're beautiful. It's, It's just a beautiful kind of textured, rustic thing about it. And couple that with, you know, an intense process that, is usually reserved for animation, the visualization of the movie. So we're taking a drama and then we're treating it like an animated movie and visualizing it over and over and over, making it over and over and over until I'm like, this is the movie from beginning to end. I can see it, every single movement, why the camera's moving, why that lens, why that framing, everything, everything about it. It's super arduous. And in this case, was the most arduous that it's ever been for me. For whatever reason, I don't know why that was. It was the hardest to storyboard. Easiest to write and hardest to storyboard, which is super strange. Like, I don't know why, what it is. but And then as a result, I feel like when you guys watch it, it has this kind of strength and posture about it that you guys can feel as it's moving through this very fast, tumbling thing. 
and it has its own each scene has its own identity you mentioned the fact that it was hard to storyboard and i wonder maybe if it's because of being in this one space yeah. so a couple of your films now have been just primarily in one space obviously old mainly on the beach and yes. in uh the visit mainly in the grandparents house and even in split mainly in this yeah kind of warehouse bunker and yeah, underneath bunker the fridge yeah i mean underneath the zoo <laughs> so um when you're shooting in one space and obviously there were two cabins the exterior and the yeah, yeah. exterior but What's your kind of consideration or some considerations you might have about sticking to one location in order to challenge yourself or to keep it interesting? Yeah, it isn't about some kind of gauntlet for me as a filmmaker to kind of get over and, you know, trick myself or something like that. <laughs> now I'm going to run a, a full marathon or whatever. You know, it's not it's not like that. It, you know, I really enjoy what it does to a giant story, creating a frame and creating making a painting about an event. But the event is off mm. the painting. But you're seeing the ramifications of the painting, of the event that's off the frame, you know, in the painting. Love that. But I do think, as you were saying, I, I probably could correct myself and based on what you were saying as well, that rang really true. It, it was probably most difficult because I was trying to make, it's a very verbal, it's like a play, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And so making scene 18 visually an evolution from scene 12, but then scene 45 has to be, even different and movement because the characters are feeling different and different things and ratcheting it. So never using the same camera moves, never treating it exactly the same way. If this scene is in profile because they're, they're refusing, refusing to refusing to activate, then you never return to profiles, you know, that, that kind of discipline. And so it's hard and wonderful to kind of go, okay, now we're on scene 64. How do we represent where they are? Did it help to have the flashbacks as a way of Definitely. Uh, marking that as well? Yeah. I mean, I love a little bit, the two part of it is the, the coitus interruptus of it all. Love it. Like, ah, uh, out, you know, yeah. And then out, you know, sorry, I'm uh, sorry. Were you really into something? Sorry. We're going to this other thing. There's music and parents and this and that. And I always kind of cut to music every time. Like, you know, you know, so it's shocking, but it does create a palate cleansing moment as you come back again and then catch back up where you were to the past. You know, you're juxtaposing two stories, the past and the present. And then the past is informing what's going to happen, both for them and for us, of like, what does this mean when they decide to make a decision? And we're getting to know the characters as well. Yes, Understanding yes. why the decision has the weight that it does. Yes, exactly. And, and why they might have been chosen. I just have one existential question, I guess. Sure. You've made now, I think this is your third film about kind of a post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. or end-of-the-world type scenario. How do you think you would fare if that was kind of going on? Do you have, like, that kind of survival instinct? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I always joke about, you know, like the zombie apocalypse. If there's some, you know, we meet somebody, I'm like, all right, you can be in our bunker in the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it's always, it's always lightly joking, you know, about it. I would, I'd be good in terms of being a strategist for our group to help out, to, to think of ways to keep us alive. I think that would be my asset to the group. Get you and Dave, you'd be fine. Yeah, Dave can ex- execute it, and then I can strategize it. <laughs> Excellent, thank you so much. So Lillian, we'll come to you first. Are you a Shalaman fan? I mean, I feel that like kind of the culture has turned a little bit into kind of, he's becoming a bit of a more beloved figure after a time where he was something of a joke. I mean, I would say some of that was racism, <laughs> the way that he was treated, but I think generally people are turning around to being quite fond of Shalaman. I think I must have first seen The Sixth Sense when I was quite young. I watched it with my dad and thought it was a romp. I think I remember being quite annoyed because I'd worked out the twist quite quickly. Yeah, yeah, brainiac. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
ever since then, I've just absolutely loved his films. I think that there's something quite camp about them, which I really enjoy in a horror film. They don't seem to take themselves terribly seriously, but one of the things that I sort of work on is Queen Mary's Autism Through Cinema Project, and um, we we look at films from an autistic perspective. And for some reason, Shyamalan's films have resonated with me in this way, and I think it's something to do with the coldness of the delivery, the way that everyone sort of stands in front of the camera at some point and tells you exactly who they are, what their age is, their occupation, and sort of their backstory, which I absolutely love. And I think that the way that it's done is so great. And old was a joy for me. I know that a lot of people didn't like that film, but I love I love those moments when someone just sort of states exactly what's going on. I think it's fantastic. I mean, there's some moments in Knock at the Cabin where where this 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 really happens. So yeah, I'm a fan. And Knock at the Cabin certainly didn't disappoint for me. I think it might actually be a new favorite from him for me. It's it's one that I've sort of been thinking about a lot since I saw it. I don't know. I suppose it's like a closet drama, really. Um, you have some really great actors shut, locked in a cabin and they're just doing this incredibly silly thing. I mean, the premise of the film, I don't know how much we're allowed to say without verging into spoilers. I knew nothing before I saw it. So I think I think it's it's best to sort of not actually go into too much details about the plot beyond. I think, it, I think it's okay to say that there's a, a form of home invasion. I mean, it's not really a home invasion, although it feels like one where these, these four strangers sort of show up at the cabin and there's a couple played by Ben Aldridge and Jonathan Groff and their daughter, Wen. And I don't know, there was something immediately striking to me about having a gay couple, a gay married couple at the heart of this film. And what I was saying earlier about Brendan Fraser and the whale and the way that people sort of, particularly from his, in a sort of religious aspect and there's ideas of this sort of r- religious fanaticism that they believe is motivating this invasion, that I thought was just really sensitively handled. And there's a lot about their backstory, but also at the same time, it's something in the periphery for them, the, the kinds of homophobia that they've experienced. But it also to just see a film where there is a gay couple at the centre of it without having to sort of justify that or explain that. I just found really quite refreshing in a fairly mainstream quasi-blockbuster movie. For me, the thing that I kind of almost left most impressed by, because I kind of come to a Shyamalan film knowing that the filmmaking is going to be there, knowing that he is kind of somebody that really is incredibly cine-literate with the way that he uses his camera, the way that he shoots things. But Dave Bautista just, for me, continues to just raise the bar. I think he was absolutely fantastic in this. This is one of our great movie stars. Rogan, for you, what were your highlights of Knock at the Cabin? I thought it was great. I didn't take him any notes, but I did put in my phone afterwards the trolley problem of biblical proportions. And that is kind of like... <laughs> that's, I think that's how I would sum up the film. It was so much fun. I do think... I haven't seen Old. I think the last Shyamalan film I saw was Split. And I, and I don't even remember my feelings on it. I just really like James McAvoy. And I really like Dave Bautista. And I really love Ben Aldridge. And I just thought, oh my God, I love Kristen Choi, who was, who was the small child when, who is like oh my god tiny icon like I absolutely just fell in love with her from the first scene I mean the film opens on her and I'm just like obsessed with this little girl she was wonderful but yeah I mean the film was a really great time it was really interesting because I saw the review early this morning before we recorded so I haven't actually read it and this is really bad but I saw the headline which was kind of like it's a conservative 
mess. And I do feel like with Shyamalan's films in the past, it's enjoyable, but then you do if you put if you pull a thread a little too hard, it can unravel. You know, the logic or the principles can unravel pretty quickly. But I, I think it's a really fun Friday night film with really great performances. And yeah, Ben Aldridge is really hot. I don't know. Yeah like go and see it for that like you can go and see it because it's great but go and go and see it for him also and if you're not a horror fan either it's not too trying i'd say the violence isn't that bad honestly maybe i'm desensitized but i thought it was pretty tame in terms of it's definitely more um of a moral tale but at the same time yeah a lot of fun and dave batista he recently said in an interview he doesn't see himself he want he you know he wants to be a romantic lead I'm like oh gentle giant with his tiny glasses yeah I think it's it's that thing of like perhaps like the foundations of it are not as strong like in terms of story or kind of yeah like you say you pull at a thread of it and and it will come to pieces but it is that thing of the performances and just the craft of old school this is a director who is an artist who is a master of his form and it just brings everything up a level for me, I think. Same with Old, which is kind of, in some regards, a very silly film. But he makes it a feast. He makes it just kind of like there's so much to enjoy in just the way that he constructs it. Lillian, in terms of the violence, which kind of Rogan touched on, do you think that it maybe is playing it a little bit too safe there's a lot of kind of cutting away just before there's a lot of kind of reliance of the audience's imagination i suppose yes i mean as rogan said i I think that if you're into your very graphic horror this isn't the film for you it does cut away although i always find that that actually can be more disturbing when you can't see it and i think that as we start with when we are immediately positioned with her perspective of the whole thing, really. And I suppose she's always hidden by by her father's, which I suppose is part of the justification for that. That being said, that there is a scene in the film, which is a flashback, which is the most disturbing scene in the film, I think. And I just thought that it was really well handled. It could have been doing this sort of classic, like, homophobic thing that I sort of mentioned earlier, that, it, that I don't think it really does. I think that it shows it in a very realistic and incredibly disturbing and very real way. I mean, considering that the situation is hilariously ludicrous and there are moments where people sort of <laughs> almost have to put on a straight face while delivering very, very silly lines about what's actually sort of <laughs> going on within the plot. But that's a moment of sincerity that I really, I felt lifted it up beyond sort of the schlockiness that you might expect. There are other moments that I found very amusing. Rupert Grint is in this film playing a guy from Massachusetts and he has a wonderful line about how when I was younger I did some very stupid things and I I, I found that very entertaining given Rupert Grint's sort of position on on a certain franchise that he's perhaps best known for. Yeah, that that, that, that got a laugh in the screening which I was, <laughs> I was pleased to see. It's true, I do find, God bless those Harry Potter kids they are not the finest adult actors, but they give it a go. He really does give it a go in this film. And Jonathan Groff's in it, which is so great. I mean, we've mentioned everyone else. And Nikki Amuka Bird, she should get a mention. But Jonathan Groff sort of showed up in the fourth Matrix film, which anyone who knows me will know that I am a massive Matrix fan. And I was hugely into Matrix Resurrections. And, and Jonathan Groff plays a sort of villainous character in that. And it's it's so great to see him off-Broadway um, doing, doing these. These, these these films. Where's where's the Jonathan Groff Ben Aldrich rom com? Who, who needs bros? We need we need we need, to, <laughs> we need a, another rom com with with these two in it. I think I think that'd be amazing. I agree. Yeah, I think Jonathan Groff and Rupert Grint are people that had quite painful introductions to me via 
Harry Potter. I do dislike those films intensely. And Glee. <laughs> Jonathan Groff. And then like slowly through like television, Mine Hunter and Servant respectively. Yeah. And like now this. I've like come to appreciate that these are actually, you know, decent screen presences, the two of them. Um I didn't know anyone ever had an issue with Glee. This is news to me. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. It's a disaster, but it it means a lot to me. (laughs) It made us who we are today. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Well, let's get some scores on this. Rogan, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Oh, I'd probably give it a three in anticipation. The Shyamalan I've seen, I enjoy, but I I don't follow his career closely at all. So I thought, oh, you know, this would be fun, this would be a new one. And I would give it probably, honestly, a four or five throughout. Like, it's just, it's just really fun. It's It's a great time. And the performances are all so strong and incredibly sincere and even in the face of, you know, what sometimes is a bit, a little bit of a silly script or a heavy-handed script, but they, they handle it so well. And, and again, the filmmaking is is brilliant. And then, yeah, I'd say a four in retrospect, uh, you know, but the kind of four that I would rec- I would tell friends, you know, oh, if you're free, you know, if you want something to do, absolutely make this a priority because you're going to have a great time. Lillian, what about you? I think this sort of typifies the four-star movie for me. So, yeah, it'd be a four in anticipation, four in enjoyment, had a wonderful time. You know, I don't think it's going to change the world. But, yeah, four in retrospect. It's it's really fun. Go and see it, please. Yeah, I, I think I'm pretty much in line with you guys on those scores. Yeah, again, not going to change the world. Didn't seep into my DNA quite in the way that like something like a Saint Omer did. But I love that it exists. I love that M. Night Shyamalan makes his like weird little movies that become giant blockbusters. And it feels like, you know, they're keeping cinemas open in a way. And I mean, I suppose technically this is IP because it's based on a book. But like, you know, it's not a superhero franchise. And I think it's but it's going to get a lot of people into cinemas i hope at least uh, most of his films do and uh, to me i think he just seems like a wonderful man and a wonderful director but next up another wonderful director one of my favorites is manson ben's black girl The film centres on Douana, a young Senegalese woman who moves from Dakar to Antibes to work for a French couple. In France, Douana hopes to continue her former job as a nanny and anticipates a new cosmopolitan lifestyle. However, Douana is abused and degraded by the couple. So, Rogan, is this your first time coming to Black Girl? I feel like, aside from my um, new role as the Alice Diop president of her fan club, I am like the Usman Semben hive leader as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, you certainly are. No, this is not the first time I came to the film. I was having a really like rough day, like uh, probably two years ago, over a year and a half ago, just one of those days. So I took myself to the BFI and I saw that Black Girl was playing. So I sat and I watched Black Girl and I was moved in the same way you were the first time you saw Saint Omer, and I was in bits. I was in bits after, and I rewatched it for this podcast, and it still it still left me in bits. It left me furious and. It left me in awe at the filmmaking that this is an hour-long film and that it feels like it contains history. It feels like it contains the past, the present and the future. It's incredible and really beautiful to look at. It's one of those films that I feel like is frequently sort of percolating in best films of all time lists. I'm actually not sure. I don't know where it landed. It was right time. at the top. It's, it's like 
joint 95th in the sight and sound poll. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Previously, the only film to African film to have gotten into the top 100 was Tuki Buki, which is also a wonderful film from a Senegalese filmmaker. But yes, this list, we got two. So Black Girl and Tuki Buki are in there. Wow, guys, progress. Who knows? Maybe we'll get three in a decade's time. But um... Med Hondo's going <laughs> to shine in 10 years' time. I tell you, I'm predicting it. Sole O. <laughs> I, I agree and I hope so as well. But I mean, it's, it's it's essential viewing for for anyone. It's incredibly human and that feels like so ridiculous to say about film. You know, like it's human and it's empathetic, but it's really holds a mirror up and is so masterful. And if you have an hour, you watch it, but you also may need some, a bit of recovery time, I would say, to really sit with it and really reflect. I imagine it's on BFI Player for people in the UK, but I know it's on Criterion Channel as well. It, it, it gets a decent amount of being shown in rep. I, I did an introduction for this film at the BFI a couple of weeks ago. And it was sold out by like, you know, a week in advance. I think what screen was it in? I can't remember, but uh, why are you trying to diminish my accomplishments? It's not your, it's not your accomplishment. It's about where these films get shown. It's, it's about it's, where it's these great films are shown. Sh- because I think Turkey Bookie was shoved into NFT free. I mean, this is, seems to be the way that these things go. Killer of Sheep I'm I'm seeing in a couple of weeks again in NFT3. It's, it's not a diminishment of your accomplishment at all, Layla. It's about where these films it's are positioned. It's about where they're shown. No, exactly. Yeah. And the size of the, I mean, if it's sold out, I mean, NFT3 sold out isn't the same as NFT1 sold out, you know, it's it's such a different... Yeah, have a bit of faith precisely. in audiences yeah. as well as the films, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is very true, but it is nice that I think that was perhaps the third time I saw it being screened in London and that, you know, within the past like few few years, it, it's one that gets kind of a lot of attention. A lot of Sun Ben's films, so, you know, written about him and I did a program, a short program about him. Like a lot of them are very, very difficult to find. But this is kind of, so this one really and Mandabi recently was restored. Those are kind of the two that people can seek out unless you sort of go to the dark web. But yeah, for you, Lillian, assume you've seen this before because this is a kind of very important film in terms of cinema history. Yeah, I mean, I'd, you know, if you were to put a list of films together that one absolutely must see in order to have any conception of cinema, then this is, you know, right at the top of the list. I think I think that if we're making canons to leave out Black Girl is just in the, the fact that it's only sort of sitting right at the, the top of the 100 even now is 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 quite baffling to me. I mean, I love Tuki Buki. I think it's it's an extraordinary film, maybe maybe even in, in some ways a, a better film. Um, Diop Chibrom and Betty is an extraordinary filmmaker who... I love as much if not more than as Manson Band. but I, I think that it is baffling that we still have a canon where that's not it, it's not in many ways this new canon people seem to be calling it because the side and sound pole does have that amount of influence I mean pe- people might dismiss it but it, it is important and the fact that there's only these two is is quite alarming still but we were I, I did a project for Little White Lies when Mank came out for the Mank issue on how the canon formed and how the canon has changed and really films like Black Girl start making it into the canon as a result of Martin Scorsese and the World Cinema Project, and I don't think it can really be understated what an influence that's had, particularly through the Criterion. I mean, as, as you said, Reagan, it's on Criterion Channel, but we, we still don't have Criterion Channel in the UK, so these films aren't as accessible as we as we'd like them to be, and I think that's the only thing, really, that stops people from being able to see something like Black Girl, which, as you've both said, is just this incredibly important and powerful film about colonialism, and again, in the same 
same way that Santa Mare is, is really touching on the places of women and the prejudices that women face, particularly black women from white women in the relationship between France and Senegal. It's it, it's tapping into so many things that are still so incredibly relevant. I mean, this this film could quite easily have been made now as it was when Simban made it. I think, I think that it will always remain one of the most powerful films that I've ever seen. And I hope that more people will be able to see it because as a result of it sort of coming to prominence within what we sort of see as our, our canon. Yeah, I, I did speak briefly to, I mean, obviously the reason that this is Film Club is because it has a, a kind of thematic connection to, to Saint-Omer in some ways. And it was very interesting talking to Alice Diop a little bit about her relationship with Saint-Ben because, you know, it, it's that struggle of being kind of the second generation immigrant of like you want to go and watch a Senegalese film like Black Girl or, or some of his works and you're realising you're coming to it as an outsider, you're not quite connected to it in that way. And I think that's so interesting when you also look at the relationship between Rama and Laurence in Saint-Omer. It's like you understand, but then you are also, you have a connection, but then you it's somewhat other as well. But regardless of the kind of Saint-Omer connection, I just think this is such a stunning film. And it, it's one of the rare things that kind of is as good as its reputation suggests. I mean, it, it's the first African film. I mean, that's one of the significant things about it. But I mean, what a what a kind of kickstart to African cinema that this is like right after the gate. This is what was being made. For sure. I mean, it, yeah, it's incredible. It definitely earns its reputation, which I won't say about every film on that list. But with being about the Saint-Omer connection, and I wanted to kind of give a shout out, I mean, stylistically and completely different, but Nikiatu Jusu's Nanny, um, which I think was on Amazon Prime, I think is is another incredible story thematically about a migrant woman, Senegalese woman, living in New York and trying to, working as a nanny, trying to save up the money to collect her child, to bring her child over with her. And it's more stylistically like a horror film. You know, they don't look the same at all. They are only similar in theme. But I think I think it's a film by a black female director that didn't get enough love um, and I think was really wonderful. I, I do feel like I, I at one point needs to do kind of a great comparison of like the journey of Sundance winner Coda versus Sundance winner Nanny in terms of quality and then the amount of attention they got versus, you know, white female director versus black female director. Someone commissioned that for me. <laughs> we should wrap up and we've got the new way that we end the podcast, which is quickly becoming my favourite element. One non-movie recommendation. So, Rogan, what are you going to recommend to us that is not a movie? So this is cheating because I haven't been yet, but I'm really excited to go. I did meet Lillian and I did try and go the other day and it was closed. <laughs> so it's only open from Wednesday to Sunday and it is this uh, new exhibition at Raven Row, which has just reopened. It's behind the Bishopsgate Institute in kind of uh, Shoreditch, Liverpool Street area. The exhibition is called People Make Television. And there was this TV show in the, I want to say, 70s or 80s where people could just talk about whatever they wanted on television and it just cameras in a local community and they say you know this issue is concerning us and we want to talk about it and the issues varied from the small to the massive 
cultural and political issues of the time. And um, it's, you know, a BBC archive sort of project, and to my understanding. And I think it's really sad because it's, you know, the quality of the BBC, I would say, has declined since then, since giving people unmitigated power to, to say what they want and have the freedom to discuss their issues sort of unfettered, which we know is not the case now. But um, I'm really excited to get to that exhibition. Um, I think it's really vital to kind of look at what we had in terms of public service and look at the quality of what we have now and um, not let that kind of be buried and, and know sort of what we deserve and what is possible in terms of public programming. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to check out the exhibition. Just make sure you check the opening times, unlike me. I, I am not joking when that could not be more perfect for me because I have a meeting in Shoreditch and then two hours to kill before another meeting. <laughs> there you go. Raven Road. Thank you People so make much. television. Oh, brilliant. Uh, Lillian, would have hurt you? Well, I was, I was hoping that I was going to be able to recommend the Royal Opera's new production of Tannhäuser, which I saw last night, but it wasn't very good, so I won't be doing that. So I'm going to recommend reading The Complete Works of Annie Erno, who I mentioned earlier. There's a, and it's film related, but um, she's she's made a film called The Super Eight Years, which I don't know if or when it's getting a release, but I've seen it. And it's absolutely extraordinary. It's all of the sort of personal reflections and incredibly intelligent insights into her life and since she's won the Nobel Prize in Literature last year people are suddenly reading reading her books and and happening was a big move towards people reading them so yeah at least read the years because it's absolutely extraordinary so yeah that's that's what's sort of been on my mind when I'm disappointed by bad opera productions I I think that's probably a pretty solid one I doubt anybody is going to be disappointed if they take you up on that thank you both so much so yes if you've got thoughts on these films you can email truth and movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies Next week, it's time for Magic Mike to dance his last dance. Sarah Poli tells a feminist fable in Women Talking. And on Film Club, we return to one of her early acting roles in The Sweet Hereafter. Thanks so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Rogan Graham and Lillian Crawford. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.